It's a great opportunity to think about what we mean by salvation. Science fiction is the most theologically engaged of any genre of writing, any genre of fictional writing. But science fiction is a great space to play in, in a way to explore this fundamental question of what it means to be human. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. We are at the sixth episode in our series with Equipping Christian Leadership in an Age of Science, or ECLAS for short. This episode is a fun-filled and insight-packed romp through the greatest of science fiction stories and the message they have about human hopes and fears that never seem to be able to avoid having a religious dimension, even for the most anti-religious atheist writers. There's lots in this episode ideas about what science fiction reveals to us about ourselves, how it comments imaginatively on current events, and how it can even change our behaviour by showing us ourselves in a new and startling light. I hope you enjoy listening. So we have with us Reverend Professor David Wilkinson of the University of Durham, Reverend Dr Lucas Mix, who is the project manager of ECLAS, Amanda Rees, historian of science at York University, and Alan Gregory, principal of St. Augustine's College of Theology. Thank you all so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Nice to be And the topic of this particular episode is something I'm really excited about, the way that science fiction can reveal things about religion and about the relationship between science and religion. I'm a big science fiction fan myself. I loved as a child to read the works of the great founders of the discipline like Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke. Although I have to say I noticed at the time that many of their sentiments were relatively anti-religious or certainly anti-Christian. So I'm interested in hearing what your research and your investigations has uncovered about a slightly more positive role that religion may have in science. So do you want to start by saying wh- where you see what interested you about the way that science fiction provides a unique angle on the relationship between science and religion? I was fascinated a few years ago. I was watching a debate between an evolutionary biologist and a theologian about the existence of God, and I noticed that the evolutionary biologist had a great sense of hope about her. And the theologian was rather Calvinist and gloomy. And so I'm very curious about why it was that that this hope that we associate with Star Trek was so appealing to people and why there seemed to be a tension between that and the hope that we have in Christ. And so I really got into this question of the stories we tell and how they shape our view of the future. I do think there is a hope in Christianity, particularly for knowing about the world through science so that is why I love the topic. I would echo that hope theme. I was 14 when I went to the cinema to watch my second ever movie at the cinema. It was Star Wars, A New Hope. Before that, I'd only seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And it was <laughs> quite a different world. I wasn't particularly religious at the time. And I loved Star Wars because of the story. But some of the themes were about hope or about the battle of good and evil, or about this sense of, is there anything that transcends science and technology? 
And for a teenager, those were important issues for me, particularly at a time when I'm so old. I was a teenager when we were worried about nuclear war, when friends of mine were playing with Ouija boards and good and evil was part of the conversation every day. And also this kind of deep sense of, is there more to the universe than just science can describe? So Star Wars in its story, in its narrative, resonated with some of those big questions. And science fiction ever since has done that for me. Very interesting. Dave, you obviously had a kind and uh, gentle parental environment. My father took me when I was six years old to see Spartacus, and I've never actually recovered from that. It's always a <laughs> scarring memory. It's interesting, the issue about hope for me, because one of the things that sometimes strikes me about Christian conversation is the way we seem to have quite a foreshortened view of the future. We talk a lot about eschatology, but we talk very little about what you might call the future of history. And one of the things that's opened up for me through science fiction is what I find a very forceful and, and inspiring idea that right at the moment, we are at the beginnings of human history, that actually historians in 600 years time may look back on us and talk about us as living in the well, perhaps if we're lucky, late barbaric age. <laughs> and that Christians need to take a lot more seriously theologically the idea that God is in this, as it were, for a very long haul. And the providing that we don't destroy ourselves entirely in the meantime, there is, we ought to be asking such questions is what does it take for us to be credible? in thinking we shall survive or might survive into the year 5000 for instance that's a really interesting take so the idea that like the we might still be part of the early church as it were exactly and science fiction can do some some pretty interesting speculations about that yeah totally i remember seeing a doctor who episode in which it was the 51st century and the church had become a sort of military organization i don't know if you remember that one if any of you saw that one Amanda, do tell us about your own interest in this topic. It's interesting that the idea of hope is resonating in all of these kind of memories, you know, my life through science fiction. I was growing up during the, again, as David mentioned, during the Cold War, when it was, I remember asking my mother at the age of about, I don't know, four or five, I think it was, I was very small, basically, what will happen when the bomb drops? Not if, but when. And she basically said, well, we'll all be dead, so you don't need to worry about it. And that was kind of oddly okay. comforting. And then years of reading science fiction and realising, no, we're not all going to be dead. And actually, the people that live are probably the ones that aren't going to be too happy about having survived. The thing that I loved during that period, and the thing that actually gave me hope was, ridiculously enough, Star Trek. And it, I, in many ways, I lived for that moment, BBC Two, six o'clock on a Wednesday when Star Trek came on. And I was beside myself. I couldn't believe that I was trapped in this barbaric world, to pull on what Alan was just saying, when there was this world out there where there could be a future. And that was what Star Trek gave me, was a belief that there could be, that there would be a future, that, that humanity would go on, that there was going to be the 24th century and the 26th and all the rest of it. 
And at the same time as experiencing the hope of Star Trek on telly, we were reading kind of all kinds of dreadful Children of the Dust, Where the Wind Blows, all of those kind of classic 1980s children's stories that essentially told you what nuclear war was actually going to be like and how horrible it was all going to be. But through Neath Library, I also got to read the kind of the grown up science fiction because they didn't differentiate. It was really weird. They put all the science fiction in with the kids' books. I don't know if they were trying to make a kind of Point oh, wow. them, but that's where they put them, which meant that I wound up reading stuff that I really shouldn't have been reading at age nine and ten. But it introduced me to the idea of the far future in more detail. And it made me think about things that I wasn't encountering in school, but that I was encountering in the church environment. What does the end of times look like? What does it mean to create? What does it mean to be human? How can you experience eternity? What is the nature? Can, you, how can you, from within the confines of your own little heads, manage to have a sense of empathy with something that either looks or is so profoundly different from you? I take the point about Asimov and Timeline being anti-religion, although I, I, I want to challenge it a little bit, because I think that what they're challenging is Heinlein picks up very much on the capacity of people to exploit religion for money. I mean, All you right. see that with L, L. Ron Hubbard's and the kind of, if you want to make a lot of money, you don't write science fiction, you invent a religion and we know what happened next. Heinlein attacks that kind of theme in exactly the same way that H.G. Wells attacks it, that exploitation of faith for money. Um, I see. So he's just presenting the negative side to religion rather than being against religion in its essence. He's presenting the ways in which unscrupulous people can use religion for their own ends. And I would say that that's true of both Heinlein and Asimov. But I've talked enough. Somebody else can have a go now. You know, that's very interesting. Absolutely right. I'd agree with that. I mean, the interesting Star Trek itself is an interesting illustration of this. Roddenberry was famously anti-religious. And that's why. So, for the uninitiated, Roddenberry is the first, one Roddenberry. of the first producers. He's the great bird of the galaxy. Get his title right. <laughs> and he, in the early series of Star Trek, was very strict in terms of religion wasn't part of the future, and if it was, it was always in a very negative way, as Mandy has described. But also, illness and war wasn't part of the future either, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, apart from one or two problems with Klingons and all the rest of it. The, what happened with the Star Trek franchise is really interesting because it was taken over by producers like Rick Berman and others. Slowly, God and religion have started to appear in, in Star Trek in terms of spirituality, as you find it in Deep Space Nine or in Voyager. That comes in. In some of the movies, God starts to appear. Roddenberry was very unhappy with this. Even if God was presented as a charlatan, Roddenberry was still unhappy with this. So there are those who have not seen religion as part of the future. That's been part of science fiction. But science fiction is wonderful, isn't it? Is it gives you so many, it's a great space to play in. You can play with some of these ideas and play with the imagination in a way to explore this fundamental question of what it means to be human and how important or not religion is to that. And often by religion's absence, you can tell a lot of, as the stories are being told about deeper human concerns and human hunger of something more. So it's a wonderful imaginative space to explore. 
Yeah, it kind of stretches your imagination, doesn't it? And makes you consider possibilities in a way that really is quite unique for its type of literature, isn't it? And it seems to me, Amanda, that, that that's your own experience that led you into taking science fiction seriously, is that it stretched your imagination to ask questions that you just hadn't thought to ask before. It, what it does, and this is something that I teach and that I experience, what science fiction gives you is the opportunity to do an experimental manipulation of society, if you want to put it like that. You know, you can't experiment with humans, but you can, through science fiction, look at how different social systems would affect the way that human beings might behave. You can look at how different kinds of technology can be used to differentially impact different socioeconomic groups or different racial groups or different gender groups or whatever, or different species. I'm glad we've got a dog in this podcast, by the way. It's always very bad to talk about science fiction when there's just humans present. Um, <laughs> it gives you that experimental space, but it also it gives you that experimental space to see what happens and what if it places those questions almost always in a moral context even if it's not a specifically religious context it's always the question of is this right from the i'm a mad john windham fan and if you read john windham's novels and if you read his writing, when he talked about what he wanted to do with his writing and when he went and gave after dinner speeches and all the rest of us, his point is that science fiction shows us that we can make choices. This is what it does. It shows mm. us there's nothing predetermined about the development of science or technology. That science and technology are the product of what human beings decide to do. And if we don't like one version, we can choose not to do it. We have free will in that sense. We are not predetermined by the kind of the discoveries that might happen or might not happen. We can make choices. Right? And he took not so he wasn't taking it. In fact, actually, I would say that Wyndham, of all the kind of classic writers, is probably the most anti-religion in many ways. But very interesting that question about choice is at the heart of science fiction, and the choice is always a moral or an ethical one. That's interesting, because the I think science fiction often can be in a way that, off, that say, realist novelists like Emma Zola or George Gissing couldn't be, is ideologically much more messy. I've just been doing writing a lecture about the Japanese, well, actually it's British Japanese anime movies, Ghost in the Shell. And one of the startling things about that is that the director manages to raise quite diverse ideological takes on human augmentation and the, if you like, the cyborgization of human beings. I mean, there is not a clear ideological direction in the film. And that actually is, is I think, quite deliberate. He pushes the ambiguities and allows them to stay. So the viewer is faced with all kinds of very interesting questions about is there a point at which augmentation of the body threatens the integrity of the human? Is there a point where tech, the interface between technology and our bodies disrupts something fundamental to human integrity? Or is this something to be welcomed wholeheartedly? And if so, in what form? Is this, and one whole thing in the film hints that you know, one myth here is the Gnostic one of separating from the flesh and into the plenitude of cyberspace in which we are partially omnipresent and sort of omniscient. 
And that's also a sort of promise of the future, if it's portrayed that way, that one day we will be free of these fleshly problems. Yes, out of the meat, as um, William Gibson used to like saying. <laughs> but in the same film, there are other alternatives too, and other judgments on what's going on. And I think this is very much goes back to what Amanda is saying. Critics sometimes go for science fiction text as incoherent, but sometimes the lack of tying things together or the lack of a, an ideological direction is actually the, what makes it excellent, what actually is really so productive. Yeah, it's not trying to solve problems, it's trying to raise interesting questions that force you to think. I, I also think it's a great opportunity to think about what we mean by salvation. So we talked about escaping the flesh, that's one, that's a Gnostic view of salvation perhaps escaping the earth or escaping our neighbors or having lots and lots of robot labor that will do all of our work for us so that we no longer have to toil. All of these are opportunities in, in a somewhat safe, I think, play box environment to say, what does salvation look like for us? What are we hoping for? And I think like any good story, it appears safe at the beginning, but if it gets you to think, it really can change who you are. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. No, but, but it also, I mean, it's just to stick a plug in here, I don't know when this is going out, but Lucas and I are in the process of organising a conference on basically theology and science fiction. And the tagline for it is something that I do profoundly believe, which is that science fiction is the most theologically engaged of any genre of writing, any genre of fictional writing, because of those kind of questions that it asks. Because it's automatically ultimate, it automatically pushes things to their limits, I guess. But it also it shows the way it also shows the way in which science and religion, you know, we all are just so fundamentally intertwined in everyday life, in our experiences and our understandings. I mean, there's some fascinating examples from SF history. One of the potential contributions to this conference is basically looking at the work of I've forgotten his first name. This it's an American writer and it's Gratica, the promise of another certainty of a future life on Mars. And it's based on the idea that kind of the spiritual progress of human beings, basically, we progress through the planets, we move through different planets as we kind of become more perfect, more close, and literally then move closer to the divine. And this is discovered because of electric, it's written in the 1880s, and it's discovered through, it, they discover this through the invention of electric telegraphy. So they managed finally to use the new telegraph to communicate with Mars and discover that here are the people that have literally gone before and you can see this in any other in any number of different examples looking again at how faith and technology faith and expertise are, are, are like snails and shells you can't have one without the other because it just doesn't work that way it's it's very interesting to see how this theme of hope keeps recurring when we're talking about science fiction i guess that's not a coincidence because it's always looking about the future and possible future worlds but it also prompts the question what is your hope actually grounded in and what are you hoping for as well both of those things so in the in the early roddenberry style star trek the hope is really grounded in human progress of all kinds humans lifting themselves up by their bootstraps out of moral, religious, conflict, out of economic poverty and all those kinds of things and dis and saving itself, as it were. That's one sort of ground for hope that Christians may not agree with, but there's still hope present there. Absolutely. And that kind of myth of human progress, as a number of theologians have, have talked about it, that science, technology, education will deliver us into utopia. 
was very prevalent within the beginning of the 20th century. And you see it in, in certain forms of science fiction, but the interesting thing is, is indeed the history of the 20th century showed us is that, that, that trust in human progress without attention to choices, without attention to some of the bigger questions actually doesn't work. And I think, again, science fiction is full of instances where the belief in progress doesn't lead to what you expect unintended consequences come out. And science fiction allows you to explore those stories. And as I was listening to the news this morning and uh, an AI engineer talking about the future of artificial intelligence, some of that has already, of course, been explored in many, many different forms of science fiction. And actually, that's a real help to how we then discuss science in the public sphere, because some of those stories have helped us to think through some of the questions that science itself then begins to pose. So not just with AI, but it, when Elon Musk and others say that the only way to defend the human race is by colonizing other worlds. Alan, you were referring to this a little earlier. We have stories where we've got some common ground to begin articulating between scientists and ethicists, between theologians and sociologists, historians and literary writers about what kind of world do we want to create together and what kind of worlds do we want to develop. Uh, and so although the stories at times may exaggerate lots of these things, and sometimes that affects how people understand science, nevertheless, I think they're good stories for us to collectively talk about the future. Yeah, one thing actually interesting, David, that plays into that recently is it's over the decades, it's been evident that aliens have got to look less and less like Donald Trump with an antennae. I mean, <laughs> simple, obvious versions of our, of our perhaps nastier selves, but they are more and more genuinely alien. Actually, H.G. Wells was quite good with his Martians in, in at least making something physically alien. But... But the interest and the imagination shown in making the other really startling and different and posing the question of how do we actually think through the idea of relating here? And it's coming at a time when historically and culturally that is a bigger and bigger issue for human beings because the model of, of empire and, and colonialism is cracking very severely. And we're thinking beyond and past that. But what does it actually mean, other than, the, other than our usual sort of tendencies of the warfare and all-purpose nastiness? What does it actually mean to, to, talk, to think, collaborate, and in Christian terms, love across great difference? And science fiction does, I think, recently, in some of its particular works, does a brilliant job in helping us think about that or imagining scenarios where we are challenged to think really outside ourselves in order to perceive recognition across everything screaming at us that this is not recognizable. CJ Cherry, I think if that's how you pronounce that, is a particularly brilliant at this. One of my favorite little passages in all 
science fiction is a moment where she has her heroine getting an intimate connection with a, a hive creature. And hive creatures have always had a bad deal in um, science fiction. They're only thought to be too, too much like totalitarian regimes and things. But she does, it turns that upside down. And you have this very intimate moment between something that looks like a six foot cockroach and this human being. And it's that sort of thing is, I, as you used the term, it, change, it changes your horizon on things. And I think she manages that and she's not the only person who does it well. Nettie Okorafor has great stories about Binti, who is a uh, uh, an African woman who goes and uh, experiences truly alien cultures in space. And, and much like C.G. Cherry, I think it's wonderful because she tells stories that aren't resolved in the end. So you have this interaction with an other who is sufficiently other that you don't walk away with a full knowledge of them. And I think a lot of the ethical questions we deal with have exactly that weight to them. Of, of how do you be ethical, how to be ethical when you don't understand. And I value that greatly as well. Yeah. Again, not to harp on Star Trek, but I mean, Rodenbury's vision of a future where black and white could live in harmony and gang up on green was extraordinarily well realized. But it effectively, again, depended upon the notion that you've got black people and white people and Russians and even a Scot on the bridge of the enterprise but the guy in charge is the man from iowa from the midwest i mean okay william shatner's canadian and jewish but that's a, that's irrelevant to the folks <laughs> and i think that's why anthropologically engaged science fiction is really satisfying i mean both lucas and i reacted with joy at the mention of cj cherry who is also one of my favorite authors precisely because of that capacity to be the anthropologist mm -hmm. and again that's also what where i see some of the connections between religion and science fiction and anthropology and science fiction in that sense what science fiction does is encourage you to look at your world through the eyes of the other to see your own culture through alien eyes to do you, you can interpret and i'm really cautious about saying this because i'm not a theologian so everybody feel free to shout at me you could interpret the act of incarnation as the ultimate act of participant observation then being sacrificed at the end might give some university ethical committee something to boggle at but you can see that kind of story playing out there and i think that it's important as well to bear in mind one of the most effective constructions of a wholly non-human viewpoint, a wholly non-human framework, I think actually comes from William Golding. And it's a book called The Inheritors. I don't know if yeah. any of the rest of you are familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And Great what, book. what that depicts is an encounter between humans and Neanderthals. Right? Now, paleo science fiction is a sub theme in and of itself. And don't get me started on that. Otherwise, we're not going to finish and you're going to have to mute. <laughs> Golding was one of the first kind of examples of paleo science fiction, looking at the encounter between the human and the not quite human. And there's so much there. Isn't that so rich? Because they're not alien. They're us. But they're not us. So how do you manage that encounter? And it all plays out horrendously because, as you can imagine, what, what happens. Well, no, I won't spoil it for those who haven't read it. But within it, you get the world from the Neanderthal perspective. 
a focus that isn't the kind of individual focus that is kind of like the Western way of looking at things. There's no I, there, there is us. People have often read it and thought, oh, well, these Neanderthals are psychic. You know, they can see what they can see through each other's eyes. And they're not. It's because they're so attuned to each other and they're so close physically to each other that they can literally see through each other's eyes. They remember the same events because they have been so closely it's a kinesthetic intelligence the best way that i can put it and it's wholly different from the kind of cognitive intelligence that we tend to valorize in the west and it particularly in the context of today's news about ai and chatbots and i love the phrase that's i've forgotten the guy's name but it's jeffrey whoever it is the guy that's just resigned from google there's a phrase in the new york article that's something that we don't understand how different the intelligences we're creating are from us. And there's so much in that. I could, I'm going to spend some time later on today now just trying to think through how I would respond to that because it speaks to so much, again, so many explorations in science fiction, but also so much that we know about the history, Western humanity's history of encountering the rest of the world. I'm loving this theme of encounter with the other, and it plays on the sort of ambiguity with the word alien, which used to just mean a stranger who's a human being from another country, but nowadays it tends to mean another another race from another planet. And yet it shows how we see them as other, and then we often anthropomorphize them, we see them as too much like ourselves, and we don't understand how they're different, or we reject them as other and as different and persecute them, or find ourselves at war with them. I don't know if any of you are fans of Orson Scott Card's books like Ender's Game, where he also has a hive mind alien, and it's part of the misunderstanding between humans as not hive minds and the alien as being a hive mind that causes this massive war between them, which is entirely based on the fact that they don't quite understand how each other works. So that's another possible example there. Yeah, and to be, start on speaker for the dead. Uh, to be explicitly theological, I feel like part of where we find ourselves is that uh, sin is often a failure of imagination. It comes from thinking that that my needs have to conflict with someone else's, and not thinking about different ways that the world could be constructed. And so, whenever possible, if we can think about how different beings flourish in different ways and how we might approach a problem in a new way, I think that can only be good for theology and only be good for science. And the, uh, the other contribution to that, I think going back to Amanda's reference to the inheritors, I mean, Golding was an extraordinarily prescient in many ways because it, from what I understand, contemporary evolutionary biologists and anthropologists are beginning to uh, have sometimes pushed against the uh, assumption that we are Homo sapiens survived and were the last person standing, as it were, because we were better at everything. We were just more highly developed with, if you like, virtuous possibilities than the other hominids. But the evolutionary evidence is actually suggesting now that that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, and our relationships with hominids are far more complex. And in the in the you know the evolution, there are qualities, no doubt, and qualities, virtues, and capacities that were not well represented in Homo sapiens, but were represented better, say, in Homo naledi or in Neanderthals. That just knocks us off our perch in a very healthy way, I think, which is something else that science fiction does in various ways. And it is a 
has a theological resonance in that, after all, God, the choosing of Israel is not choosing the most uh, philosophically technical and uh, technological and, you know, it's or ethically superior, yeah. Ethically superior bunch of folk. It just doesn't work like that. And that's sort of, so there's a, the pushing us off our perch is an interesting point of, of contact and discussion with between religions and science fiction, I think. There's another wonderful piece of paleofiction written in French, and the author is Vercor. I don't know, that's a pen name, I don't know what the real name is. And in English, which is the only version I've read, it's called You Shall Know Them, um, which obviously has a certain resonance as, as, as a quotation. And it's basically, it's the, the priest um, Théa de Chardin features in the book, in his in his role as a fossil hunter, as a paleoanthropologist, and basically it 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 turns on the discovery of a living hominid race, um, another kind of lost tribe kind of notion. So you have this kind of proto-humans, clearly much less intelligent. They can't speak. They're very good at manipulating, but they can't speak. The question then being, what happens to them? What's what are they going to be used for? Because that's essentially what does happen to them. They, they turn into slaves. They are in, they are put to they they become indentured labour slaves. And there's a big debate in the book about what the status of these beings are. Is it is it right? Is it morally right to enslave them? What should we be doing with creatures that are so like us, but at the same sense, apparently so inferior? And it turns out that the humans and these hominids are it's fertile. So what happens and where the book begins is that the discoverer of this lost community impregnates one of the female hominids a baby is born he then takes the baby to the hotel de ville and has it christened sorry and has it and has its birth registered and then takes it to the church and has it christened and then he kills it and then he goes to the police station and says this is what i've done what are you going to charge me with and the book then is the backstory of how they got to that place. And the Gosh. second part of it is a big, it's basically science and religion both on trial. How does evolution, how, what, does, what can evolution tell us about the moral status of the, these beings? What does the fact that the infant had been christened, where do you bury it now? Where do you place the remains? And where it winds up is essentially what they discover as well because the Théa de Chardin character has been doing a bit of proselytizing because he's a Jesuit so you would kind of expect this to happen and he's managed to convey some kind of sense of ritual at least to the creatures he's been working with and the judge finally decides on the humanity of the hominids because they appear to have the capacity to apprehend something beyond themselves some kind of capacity mm. to apprehend the divine so they might not look like us, but because they share that capacity, that is the French judge's decision. It's a great book. I really recommend having a look at it. I mean, it's it's really interesting, Mandy, isn't it? That a, a lot of these stories and that one that you've just described allow us to touch questions that we would be very nervous of touching in everyday life. And going back to your bridge of the Starship Enterprise, so much of what was going on there was telling the stories of 1960s America without actually naming 1960s America and what was going on. So science fiction has this ability to allow us to tell stories, ask questions that actually we'd be very nervous of doing when it came down to concrete situations. And that's that kind of imaginative space which is really helpful. The other thing that, I, that I, I'm fascinated by, I hadn't made this connection before, was in that story 
this sense of the transcendent, the divine, as common ground. Stanley Yaki, a very distinguished Roman Catholic theologian, used to say that if the aliens did land, we Christians should be the first ones there to greet them, not Donald Trump, but we Christians, because <laughs> in this sense of the divine, there would be, we would believe, a common ground for the whole of the universe. And that's that's really interesting. Thank you. There will be, when I write my science fiction book, a chapter called Jesuits in Space. <laughs> oh, well, so I suppose you're a big fan of Mary Doria Russell's book, The Sparrow, then which also explores some of these similar sort of gruesome, quite difficult themes where the aliens are, and she explicitly says in an interview that the experiment that she's doing with that book is to try and comment on some of the colonizations that happened with Christopher Columbus right at the beginning when, when he encountered the Native Americans to see, well, actually it can be very complicated and difficult encountering a entirely foreign culture and some of the things that seem very innocent gestures or innocent interactions can turn out to have hugely damaging and complicated effects on the culture that you're encountering. And yet, what what do we think as Christians about how we best approach other cultures and how we best reach them or interact with them? One of the things I love about science fiction is that for me, at least, it reveals the stories I've been telling myself already. Uh, Very interesting so way of putting it. In these new stories, I found that there's these old stories that I've been telling, perhaps, about Christopher Columbus. There's one that I grew up being told many stories that I, I now would disagree with. And, and they're stories about war and technology and gender and all of these things. And... and so I discover that there is, in fact, a story that I have, and I can ask, is that a Christian story or not? And Mary Doria Russell, I think, does that beautifully in so many ways and, and doesn't answer the questions, but does, I think, help us ask some of those important questions about things we already believe. Yeah, it's never about tying up loose ends, is it, in science fiction? It's always about pushing difficult and awkward questions and making you think hard about the society that we actually live in and the decisions that we've already made as a human race. Bonnie, I think that, that's very important. I think it's not, not just science fiction, but I think popular culture in general is very good at pushing questions in the way that it, it explores society. And one of the things that a, a dear old friend of ours, the late Tom McLeish, would constantly say is that that needs to be the nature of science as well that too often we've presented science as simply answers to questions. But the really great scientists and what science is all about is about being able to, to find, explore, articulate what the key questions are. And this opening up of a society, which is much more about common exploration of the questions whether it be in theology or whether it be in science, whether it be in politics or economics, is something that we've valued within our history and perhaps is under pressure at the moment as we follow too much party lines or we polarize society. And part of this is some of the algorithms of social media, but part of it I think is just an inability sometimes just to live with questioning each other in good ways. And science fiction allows us to do that. 
it encourages us not to rush to the answers, but to dwell a little bit on the questions and to, and in doing so, to be able to see things from other points of view that we hadn't seen before. I think it's yeah to dwell to dwell on the questions, but also to dwell on the processes by which we think we can find answers. Right? It's about practice as well, mm. and about those kinds of actions. And the reason why I'm saying that comes back to the point we were raised. I mean, a lot of science fiction it picks up on that kind of the the theme in Russell and elsewhere. I'm thinking of the encounter between actually Star Trek as well with the Prime Directive, the encounter between a civilization that is significantly technologically more advanced than another civilization. And in many ways, and you see this in the, um, oh gosh, sorry, I'm blanking, um, Chinese science fiction, help me out here, Lucas. Yes, thank you. With that, which is replaying that encounter between the encounter between Chinese civilization and Western civilization and playing that out as a kind of Darwinian war of all against all. It's a reflection, I think, again, on the sense of moral responsibility within Western civilization that so much of the fear of the other, the fear of aliens, whether it be hive mind or whether it be whatever, is reliant on the notion that aliens are going to be able to do to white men what white men have done to the rest of the planet. And that will not be good. And it's that fear there. Sorry, go on, Lucas, you're going to... Oh, I was going to point out that's exactly the narrative in War of the Worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's explicitly so, because he basically, there's a point where he says, we are to the, the these aliens what the Tasmanians were to us that there's an explicit acknowledgement of that there. It's colonialism writ large, imperialism writ large. And it's, again, not necessarily theologically well explored, but certainly the moral question of responsibility and the responsibility of us now in the present, those of us who benefit from Europe's capacity to nick everything that belonged to the rest of the world the books that surround me the fact that i'm in a comfortable all of this is dependent upon that first encounter it's very interesting how we started off talking about the theme of hope and how science fiction conveys certain hopeful scenarios about the future but now we're talking a little bit about the darker and more embarrassing or awkward side of what science fiction can show us about what human beings are capable of isn't responsibility the other side of hope Yes, yeah, not optimism oh. we're talking about, it's hope. Yeah. But the, uh, there's a, can, if I can uh, just mention a silly piece of science fiction, because there really is a lot of silly science fiction. As you know, and Lucas can probably give me the date, but towards the end of the very end of the 19th century, it was formally declared that the frontier was closed, um, that you know, the Western frontier had been closed. And just a few little while afterwards, Edgar Rice Burroughs has his chief main character, fall asleep in a cave in the West and uh, wake up on Mars. And he discovers immediately such wonderful things as the fact that the Martian gravity is a a lot uh, lighter than Earth, so he's able to bound 30 feet at a single stride, which implies in, Burroughs sort of implies that this just shows that American gravity is better than gravity is anywhere else in the universe. But the thing is that it's so fascinating about this. It is very silly, the Martian stories, but and he does go off and do gets involved in in Martian wars and all the rest of it. But the interesting thing about it is this is the way it, it points to an modernity's anyway need for a frontier. I mean, as soon as a frontier is closed, 
a frontier is imaginatively created elsewhere. And science fiction was part of that creation of frontier. But of course, what we're doing in this conversation we do is in a way, in a way, talk about just how much more difficult the frontier is than it was for Edgar Rice Burroughs. Just how much more ethically troubling and perhaps religiously, Christianly beckoning than it was for Burroughs. Burroughs just wanted another frontier. His hero could go and bash up Martians or anybody else that happened to be around. But now we question, we both have the continuing need for the frontier, but we question our very inhabiting of any frontier. To, to push back just a, a little on that, I'm thinking of Andy Ware's The Martian, the book in a, a very popular movie. And I think there is a popular narrative that's not at all complicated. And it's a, a narrative that says an individual scientific and technological genius always has frontiers open to them. And I think that one of the things we can do is, is talk about how that interacts with the Christian narrative, which at the surface level might look very similar, that you know, virtue will will be a reward. And, and so it's it's an opportunity, I think, to understand when the narrative is simple and what the what the benefits and, and hazards of that are. Yeah, and I think the uh, David's notion of the divine ground, which I thought was very striking, is that the Christian frontier is that divine ground, whereas there are lots of, um, shall we say, sort of frontier-like, but for Christians, it's always going to be that divine commonality. Well, I think what's interesting then is to what extent, to what extent do we change that particular narrative by looking at looking beyond kind of Western science fiction? Because we focused you with two two exceptions, maybe we focused you predominantly on material from the Western tradition. And there's a whole range of other traditions of speculative fiction out there. I mean, again, you know, explicitly Rodenbury sold Star Trek to the TV, to the TV finances by saying, look, this is the wagon train to the stars. It was an explicit kind of colonial frontier model there. And that kind of optimistic approach to the future, not hopeful, optimistic, is classic. What, what somebody's called the, um, de Gaulle, um, I've forgotten this, Kil Kilgore. Astrofuturism. Yeah, no, I was trying to remember the author's name, but astrofuturism. Is it Kilgore Brady or Brady Kilgore? I always get it the wrong way around. But anyway, that's the guy that that, that came up with a book of the, the the kind of the classic exploration of astrofuturism. This idea that essentially the future is going to be the kind of a, a version of Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, right? That it's everything stopped and it's going to be the middle class dream writ large in the stars kind of thing. Middle class white dream writ large in stars. And I think what's important about other traditions, things that might fall under the heading of speculative fiction rather than science fiction, is that themes like astrofuturism, so um, Afrofuturism, pick up on the notion that science and technology is something that essentially belongs to white people and shows how you can explore that in different ways and to use science technology sometimes in a non-manipulative way. We think of science, this is why I was picking up on the process as well as kind of the process of answering questions as well as the act of formulating the questions. We tend to think of science and technology as ways in which we manipulate the physical world around us. What if we put those kind of techniques to different kinds of ends? Very, very interesting points. I think that's right, Mandy. And I think 
and that's where I think that sense of science not as manipulation but of joy delight gratitude thankfulness wonder awe the the wellness or even just play or play absolutely and that's the sense of exploration of frontiers not for our gain but just as curiosity now for me as a christian that has a resonance with this is god's universe all of it i'm invited to play and explore as a child in a garden and that that's about curiosity and the giftedness of that for which i'm thankful becomes a really important motivation in in science space exploration particularly for me yeah sorry but i interrupted you no that's very profound and good right i mean we've only got a few minutes left but i'd love to hear what you think about the role that science fiction has played or could play in framing the way society understands the debate between science and religion the perceived conflict or the perceived harmony what how does science fiction affect that whole debate and that whole perception i mean mandy for me put it very well earlier i mean it shows just both historically and in the present just how much they intertwine already a conflict myth metaphor is imposed upon a very fruitful complicated messy joyful relationship between science and religion and science fiction allows you to see that i think in a much healthier way but i think also it allows us to tell stories within particularly the church and and within professional science in a way that finds some common ground in the stories because these stories are read by and i'm amazed when i talk to very christian very fundamentalist christians who will read science fiction and i'm fascinated by how many professional scientists who we know who are lovers of science fiction and so here in a in a culture which has often believed the conflict myth between science and religion and therefore theologians church people and scientists feel that they can't talk about things actually the stories of science fiction give us some common ground uh, to sit down and ask questions together and find that actually these things are a lot more entwined than we ever thought i think uh, david does uh, if if you've read the uncle remus stories you'll remember the tar baby and it seemed to me that uh, religion in general and christianity in particular has been the tar baby for science fiction it's very well, not all of it but a lot of it has always re- returned to theological questions or disguised theological myths and narratives and that mu- is much more important than the virulent atheism of some of its uh, earlier writers it's the fact that these that religion on the one hand and the writing of science fiction just seem to it, you know, just the, the closeness is quite remarkable at some time, sometimes which is not the same with any with other, any other popular genre i mean not like uh, detective novels for instance crime novels very interesting just to f- close off thank you all very much for your contributions if anyone's been really intrigued 
by some of these themes and some of these conceptions of how science fiction shapes our understanding, where could they find further resources, things that you've written or things that you've really loved reading that help us explore this topic further? We have a video from a previous science fiction conference on the E-Class website, which is just eclassproject.org. So you can go to the senior leadership conferences pages and find it there. Wait until after the 6th and 7th of June, we will have the material from the conference that we're holding in London on science fiction and faith, what well, science fiction, faith and um, science. Um, so there'll be videos there. And we'll also, I think, be putting up some of the physical resources that we'll be producing for that, won't we, Lucas? Yeah. booklet for bishops etc fantastic so there'll be a lot of resources on the ECLAS project's own website if people want to follow up and what about you alan there's a good book by and one of the guys that was at that ECLAS conference and i can't remember his name but it just called science fiction and religion which is a, a, a really ni a nice short piece i wrote a book some time ago covering a similar field and i mean it's funnier i mean it has some jokes in it <laughs> um, best reason for trying to to read it but uh, it also talks tries to embed science fiction a little bit further back within the 18th and 19th centuries in relation to things like our way we started to talk about technology in the 19th century and 20th. very very interesting there's some great recommendations and i'll put them in the text blurb for this episode thank you all very much for your contributions it's been a very very rich episode and i've really enjoyed exploring some of these topics and thinkers and books and and films that i've read throughout my life and hearing some of your different takes on it so thank you for joining us thank you Thanks for the opportunity it's been great fun thank you for listening to faith at the frontiers a podcast produced in collaboration with the tablet if you liked this episode then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future for now goodbye